Welcome to the Retirement Committee Field Guide Podcast. I'm your host, Alden Bianchi. The Retirement Committee Field Guide explores the world of U.S. retirement plan governance with a focus on fiduciary committees. U.S. retirement plans, 401k plans in particular, have over the last dozen years been the subject of an unending stream of class action lawsuits alleging some combination of plan mismanagement, excessive fees, or self-dealing. Plan sponsors have responded by upgrading plan compliance and installing robust oversight that often includes the appointment of a retirement or fiduciary committee. These committees are typically advised by professional investment managers and benefits consultants. Each month, this podcast examines some aspect of retirement committee maintenance, emerging best practices, and developing law, among others. Its purpose is to educate and inform plan sponsors, committee members, and others with an interest in the topic on all aspects of the work of retirement committees and to encourage committees that are best in class. Welcome to Episode 4 of the Retirement Committee Field Guide Podcast. I'm your host, Alden Bianchi, and my guest today is Krista DeLoya. Krista is a member of Fidelity's legal department where she supports Fidelity's retirement plans and record-keeping business. So today marks a little bit of a pivot in the Retirement Committee Field Guide. Uh, up to now, we've focused on folks who are benefits consultants to plans, and this is the first time we'll be interviewing somebody who's from a uh, platform provider. So, Krista, welcome, and thank you for joining us. And uh, can we start with, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Very happy to be here. Um, so, as Alden said, um, my name is Krista DeLoya, and I work uh, at Fidelity Investments. I've been there for almost 25 years. I support the retirement record keeping um, business and, you know, it's evolved over the years, but every day is interesting and um, enjoy it immensely. Great. So, Krista, I just started off by using the phrase platform provider, and I, and I don't mean to assume that everybody on the podcast understands what that means, but it's certainly, uh, at least in for folks who uh, deal in this uh, end of the business day in and day out, it's a critically important part of a retirement plan, and not just a 401k plan, but any qualified and even non-qualified plans. So could you have a few bars about what is a platform provider and how does it differ from a consultant or other, other vendors to plans? Sure. So um, a platform provider, or sometimes referred to as a plan record keeper, makes available a variety of services to assist plan sponsors and fiduciaries in administering and managing their retirement plan. And while the services may vary depending on the provider, most will include pre-approved plan documents, and these are more desired today given the retraction by the IRS of its determination letter process. Plan record keeping, which includes updating contributions, taking investment elections, exchanges, maintaining vesting, processing plan loans, withdrawals, distribution, withholding and tax reporting, all the things that need to be done to um, maintain the tax qualification of the plan, as well as participant servicing. Um, the provider may also offer a platform of investment products for which plan sponsors can select for their plan lineup. Um, and depending on the plan's other providers, the record keeper may trade uh, the investment options with the asset manager directly uh, to support the activity in the plan. Other services a platform provider may include uh, phone and website support, participant education, required disclosures and notices, managed account services, trustee services, and discrimination testing. 
Wow, that, that, that's a lot. I mean, it sounds like you've just uh, covered the entire waterfront of, 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 of 401k services. And I think it gives some indication of how important all of this is, obviously. Uh, but you did raise something that I do find of interest. In fact, I just encountered it in a client situation earlier today. And that is there was a time when a 401k plan document almost always or usually meant a, a custom drafted thing. And, and it seems like more and more uh, plans are migrating to pre-approved documents. And those documents themselves are becoming far more robust. They're able to, to, uh, to, to reflect a broader range of plan design uh, features. Um, do you have any sense of, of how large each universe is, even if it's anecdotally? Uh, how, how many plans are left, do you, do you think, uh, that are still custom designed versus have migrated to pre-approved status? Well, by percent, and I don't have the actual numbers, the, the, the far greater portion of the plans that we record keep are using a pre-approved document. Um, and as folks would imagine, it tends to be in historically, it was the smaller plans that actually use the pre-approved documents. But to your point, that has changed considerably. Um, and we have the largest of large plans that use pre-approved document. Um, I would say that in our, our largest market, it's still a low percentage, but it's increasing every day. Yeah, that that that's exactly my experience. In fact, uh, our firm is on a is on a pre-approved document now, and that uh, that historically was not the case. A couple of things that it seems platforms providers are doing more and more, uh, and that has to do with participant education. Uh, in our in our preparation for this episode, we, we were able to discuss this a little bit how important it is. But could you tell us a little bit about how you see participant education rolling out and, and more importantly, what has changed in, over time on participant education? Sure. This is actually one of my um, favorite topics as well. Um, and participant education is critical for plans and plan participants. And it can be delivered in a variety of forms. I think um, historically it was print communications. Um, but it's expanded beyond that to email, webinars, live meetings, conversations, or face-to-face back pre-pandemic, but via the telephone and, and digital interactions. Um, and why is it so important? I, I think from a context perspective, you know, on a very basic level, it is simply including making employees aware of the plan and how to enroll and how to choose from the investment options that are available. And that sounds very simple, but, you know, for those of us in the retirement industry, um, you know, that's like stating the obvious, but for many employees, especially younger employees, they may not be familiar with what a plan is, what the advantages are, and why they do need to save for retirement. And automatic enrollment has assisted with getting new employees in the plan but it's often very much preferred to have the employees enroll on their own as they often select a higher contribution rate than is utilized for automatic enrollment. And, you know, depending on the individual's personal situation, they may need a lot of assistance um, in selecting investment options, or they may, may wish to have a do-it-for-me solution, such as a target date fund. I think one of the biggest changes in participant education over the years is migration from one size fits all to targeted messaging. And it's far better to personalize the communication to meet the participant where they are. 
For example, some employees need basic education on how the plan works and how it could benefit them from an assessment of how to save, uh, how much to save, and how to invest. But other participants might have more specific needs. For example, they, as they approach retirement, they're thinking about whether they have enough saved um, and how to generate income in retirement. I think the biggest change is, again, digital communications, and those have proven to be most focused. And whether they're a text or a quick message, um, they've proven to be very effective. And how we measure effectiveness is, do they institute a change? Does somebody do something based on a communication that they've gotten? And they, a digital communication can spur immediate action. And for a millennial workforce, it, it is digitally is certainly the preferred way of contact. Yeah, yeah I've noticed the rise of mobile apps in this space, and I got to say that I do some some apprehension. Uh, it just strikes me that no matter how you slice it, it's got to be harder to protect data in a mobile setting than it is, say, for access to a PC. But that's simply my general layperson's view, and, and it might be from a technological standpoint, it might be no difference. And I know the Department of Labor has recently come out with some new cybersecurity guidance. What do you make of all that? And, and, and how do you feel about mobile apps versus, uh, say, a PC or a, or a Mac? Well, the DOL, as you mentioned, issued new cybersecurity guidance, and it was their first guidance. And I, I guess the, the, the quick answer is, um, given the time that we live in, the, the use of technology, and unfortunately, the amount of cyber criminals that are out there that it was very necessary and it's helpful. Um, and there's again, continued rise and there's certainly sophistication in cyber crime. Um, if we wanna spend a couple minutes and talk about what exactly did they do. Um, and again, the Department of Labor's jurisdiction is, you know, ERISA covered retirement plans, but a lot of their tips uh, make sense just for a layperson or certainly apply to individuals outside their retirement plans as well. And they've been working on this guidance for quite some time. And they've been working with the industry as to what made sense in industry groups. And um, I think this is the first cybersecurity guidance that they've issued. And it sets forth the best practices for planned fiduciaries, service providers, and participants to help them better protect their workplace savings account from fraudsters and cyber criminals seeking to steal money as well as sensitive financial and personal information. For service providers, among the best practices included in the DOL guidance are conducting risk assessments, deploying strong access controls, and having them audited by a third party, providing periodic cybersecurity training, and having effective business resiliency programs addressing continuity, disaster recovery, and incident response. For planned fiduciaries, they should be checking with their providers to ensure that they have a comprehensive cybersecurity program in place and ask about any security incidents and how they were addressed, as well as the provider's insurance coverage. DOL also issued guidance for participants who play a critical role in securing their account, which includes using complex passwords, not sharing their, inde their indicative information with others, and leveraging multi-factor authentication. And again, I think that a lot of the DOL's tips could be used, you know, not just with an individual's retirement plans. It's really across their whole digital footprint. 
think your next question is, well, what about the use of apps and the security? I think, you know, depending on the provider that you're going to or the company you're going to, if you're communicating with your, your phone versus a computer, I think it largely depends on the actual provider and the controls they have in place. So I do think it makes sense to be wary when you're going into a website and they're asking for information, whether it's your credit card or your individual information that's identifies you, you need to be careful about the the providers that you're giving that to and, you know, making sure that you're doing it in a secure format. You know, Christy, you make a good point about that DOL guidance. It's certainly welcome. And I had two or three responses to it. But my first is, is that it seemed remarkably clear and straightforward, which was good. Secondly, there was a lot of, yeah, that's kind of obvious. Uh, These are things you should be doing. But my, my third and I think most important reaction for purposes of retirement committees is the Department of Labor has given you a checklist, I mean, at least for, for, the, for the plan sponsors. You just take that checklist and you tack it to your, uh, to your retirement committee, committee agenda and you get to work on that. And in many instances, that's going to mean you need some other people in the room, principally uh, your own company's IT staff is probably going to be represented there. Uh, but also, you're going to want to hear from time to time from folks like you, from the platform providers, to ensure that they're doing things uh, that, that comport with what the DOL, and certainly your consultants as well. Uh, but I think on balance, uh, it's very welcome, very accessible, and uh, they overall, I think, did a pretty good job with it. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. And I, you know, each provider, um, and, you know, from a, te- I am not a technical expert, may have its own quibble with some of the terms that were used. But I think essentially the general sense is they hit it right. Yeah, no, I get it. Well, uh, I want to pivot to something, uh, to, a, to another topic. And this is one that I, I think you're, you folks at Fidelity and certainly any other large platforms are, are really well suited to, uh, to comment on. Uh, and also with your experience in the industry, it certainly helps. And, and that has to do with uh, with upcoming legislation. It looks like what is being referred to as Secures Act 2.0 is on the horizon. And there are all sorts of predictions about what might be in there, both for individual retirement accounts and for, for 401k and other retirement plans. But my question to you is a little bit broader than that. So if, if Congress called Chris up tomorrow morning and said, Krista, what do you think? You know, you've been at this for a while. You've seen the way things work. How, how would you change the, the laws governing these plans? And, and you can address IRAs if you like, as well as retirement plans. But, but what do you think? I think my one word response, and then I can expand on, on that, is simplification. I think the retirement system is very complicated. And for a lot of employers, it's really too complicated. And you do need a a lot of assistance from various service providers, which I think is fine because, you know, you can use all those experts to be able to um, meet your requirements. But I think if the rules were a little simpler, um, it would just make everyone's life easier and it would basically assist participants in saving more. So some of the things that maybe they could focus on is, you know, trying to simplify all of the various notices and required disclosures that have to be sent to individuals. And some of them are, are of course, really necessary. So I'm not saying don't send them any disclosures at all, but let's make them more meaningful. 
let's make them more timely. There's some disclosures that I think end up in the recycle bin and nobody nobody reads them at all. Um, I think simplification in the testing area would be very welcome. Also simplifying, and the, the, there is proposal in uh, Secure 2.0 to address how to, when there is an operational error or error made in a plan, how can you fix it yourself versus having to go from what can be a very complicated correction program, whether it's the DOL or the IRS. Because a lot of, a lot of mistakes are one, uh, just technical mistakes, and actually nobody has been harmed, <laughs> or there's something that's correctable. Right. So there, so if the plan sponsor corrects it, um, they should be able to correct it and move on and not have to deal with potential complicated filings um, in dealing with submissions to the IRS or to the DOL. And I, I, the good news is I do think that's sort of we're heading down that path. I do think one of the things, I guess, on the downside is Secure Act 2.0 um, has been introduced in the House. Um, there's been some similar legislation produced in the S- Senate. But there's a lot of changes in these. And so I will say from a platform provider, if all of them go through, um, we'll be working for years and years and years to make sure that uh, we can you know, implement all of the changes. Um, and some of them include you know, a further extension of the RMDH. Um, Secure 2.0 raised it from 70 and a half to 72. 2.0 has a proposal that would scale it in up to 75. So again, I think welcome changes, but those those are changes can be very, very complicated to implement, especially if you have a bifurcated system where certain participants are subject to one age and other individuals are subject to a different age. Yeah. You know, there's a lot there, but there are three that I really want to highlight for this for purposes of this particular podcast. And one, well, two of my bullet points can perhaps be combined into one, and that is the, the self-correction of, of problems that arise in plans. I've, I've, been, uh, I, I've been pushing that as an agenda item for years at the various very industry and trade conferences. But just loans have, for some reason, the IRS correction programs, which, by the way, uh, I, I have to say, these programs are, they go back to 1981. They're, they're very well thought out. They're pretty, pretty to very well operated. They do work well, but they are expensive and they're time consuming and the delays can be maddening. And there really are a host of things that can be done by self-correction that are, that, that, that ought to be just fine. When it comes to testing, uh, I'll, I'll throw out a, a fairly radical approach to testing. And that is why even require it anymore? I mean, if you look at the demographics of the 401k plans, you get plans that are in companies that are so large that for the most part, unless you're in a particular industry, you're not going to blow testing. It's not going to be a problem. Is it really that important? Is Congress really advancing an important social goal or or legislative goal by having the the kind of god-awful numerical testing that we've we've come to, to, to know and not love? Uh, I don't think Congress is going to go that path that far. So that's just a aspirational on, on, on my part. Uh, but it, but I agree. I think it would be nice if we could get some expansion there. Uh, but by the way, even if you had none of Secures 2.0, just the amendments that are required as a result of the last two or three pieces of legislation, uh, you know, Consolidated Appropriations Act, the American Rescue Plan, and, and then some before that, that could keep you folks busy for a long time as well, could it not? Yeah, no, I would agree. And I do think your testing proposal of a 
elimination. Um, there are folks here that um, you know would agree with you, um, but I do also agree that it's probably a long shot. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, Krista, we, we're we're right about the twenty minute mark, and I don't want to go too long for our listeners. But is there anything else you'd like to close with, and before we wrap it up? Thank you for allowing me to chat with you today. I really enjoyed it, and I do think that. The legislation has a long way to go. So I know that the folks have, have asked me, you know, what's, what's the probability of it passing? And I'm not going to give an estimate, but I think that what we're hearing from our government relations folks is that it varies based on uh, lots of varying factors. And so a day-to-day thing to watch. Well, I, I don't know. My sense is, uh, from the various industry sources that I have is folks uh, in general, I think they're, they're saying more likely than not, perhaps. But in any event, thank you so much. Thanks for your time and, and, and your expertise. We appreciate it. And so I'm going to wrap up this episode four of the Retirement Committee Field Guide. Thanks a lot. The opinions expressed in the Retirement Committee Field Guide podcast represent the individual views of the hosts and guests and not the position, official or otherwise, of Mints or any entity with which a guest is affiliated. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only. It is not intended and should not be relied on as legal advice. No tax advice contained in this podcast may be used for the purpose of avoiding penalties that may be imposed under the Internal Revenue Code or applicable state or local law tax provisions. Listeners should seek advice based on their particular circumstances from an independent tax or legal advisor. 